1: One quick note before we start, we now have Noble Blood merch. I am so excited about all of it. Personally, I cannot wait for my pins and mugs to come in the mail. The link for the store is in the episode description and pinned on the Noble Blood Twitter account. And as always, just a quick reminder, you can also support the show on Patreon if you want access to bibliographies, episode scripts, and other fun bonus content. But of course, the best support you can give to the show is just listening, and I am so grateful for you. Let's get started. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. The Baron of Lancaster and the Baron of Warwick walked a man with ropes around his wrists to the top of a hill on a warm June morning. The two barons were quiet as they walked, listening to the monotonous, deadening pace of their footsteps in the grass. The prisoner was also silent, no tears, no begging, same as it had been during his trial just a few days prior at Warwick's castle, where a handful of other nobles had condemned the prisoner to death. The word trial is loosely applied here, There was no judge, no representation for the defendant. They said that the charge was disobeying the terms of an ordinance they had agreed upon with the king, but everyone involved knew what the real charge was, being the king's favorite. Occupying all of his attention, receiving an endless stream of his money and his favor, King Edward II was devoted to this man in a way that he never was to anyone else in his life, not even his wife. Everyone knew who the real love of the king's life was. And so Pierce Gaveston, first Earl of Cornwall, was sentenced to death. There were two men on the hill to do the actual execution. One took a sword and first ran it through Gaveston's stomach and then pulled it back out with a sickening squish. They all waited until Gaveston fell to the grass, and then his head was sliced off. The men who were still alive looked away from the mangled body and began walking back down the hill towards home. Gaveston's body was left outside for the elements, without a burial, to decompose in the grass and be picked at by the birds and rodents happening by. He was 28 years old at the time of his death, King Edward II would be furious, demented with rage and grief, when he heard that his love, Pierce Gaveston, had been murdered by the barons. But his options when it came to retaliation were limited. The barons had been filling in the vacuum of power left by the weak and ineffectual king, building their own private armies. The king's own wife, Queen Isabella, had been watching it all unfold for years. And she had her own ideas for how the country should be run. And she was about to meet a man who would help her with her coup. Her heart had been broken by a king who never cared about her at all. She could at least take a country out from under him. I'm Dana Schwartz, and this is Noble Blood. According to the Chronicle of the Civil Wars of Edward II, the first time the future King Edward II saw Pierce Galveston, he tied himself to him against all mortals with an indissoluble bond of love. It was 1297. Piers Galveston was a teenager, the son of a knight from Gasson, who had joined the army of King Edward I to fight in Flanders. The king saw the young boy particularly handsome, but also particularly graceful, athletic, and well-mannered. He embodied the values for a young man at the time when it came to bearing and male conduct. And so the king appointed the young man to join his son's household, to join the staff of the Prince of Wales, and hopefully to serve as a good example. The king was a little worried about his son, Edward II seemed to gravitate towards activities associated with the lower class, like rowing, and the menial hypnotic work of farmhands, like hedging and ditching around fields. But when Edward II wasn't playing farmhand, he seemed spoiled, a wealthy dilettante. He played the organ and a Welsh string instrument known as a cruth, which is spelled, I kid you not, C-R-W-T-H. The Welsh language does not mess around. The prince bred horses and greyhounds. He kept a pet camel and a pet lion that he insisted on bringing with him on a campaign he went on in Scotland with his father. All of that's to say, he needed good, upper-class boys in his household to model good, courtly behavior for him. When Galveston arrived to the prince's household, they were about the same age— Gaveston may have been one or two years older, but from that point on, the two young men were inseparable. It was love in every sense of the word. They rode together, walked together, talked together, played together. It was no secret with whom the prince was spending all of his time, and the prince was already working hard to elevate Gaveston's position in the household He was designated a socius, or a companion, rather than what one might have expected, which was for him to be a scutifer or an esquire. The two men were so close that when the king wanted to punish his son for loudly voicing his disparaging opinion about the Bishop of Chester, he did so by exiling Piers Gaveston to France. Gaveston was still granted a salary while he was away. for as long as he shall remain in parts beyond the sea, during the king's pleasure, and waiting for recall. Edward II was bereft. He wrote a letter to his sister Elizabeth, hoping that she could talk to their stepmother and get her to intercede with the king to bring Gaveston back. We would be greatly relieved of the anguish which we have endured, Edward II wrote, and from which we continue to suffer from one day to the next. Eventually, the king forgave his son's trespasses. When the prince was knighted, Gaveston was returned to his household, like a graduation gift. And in 1306, the two boys both accompanied the king on an army expedition to Scotland, To follow up on a victory over Robert the Bruce. If you've seen Braveheart, first, please know that it is only history in the loosest possible sense. But this is also around the time period where it is supposed to have happened. Edward II's father is Edward I, of course, also known as Longshanks. Edward II, in the movie Braveheart, is portrayed as effeminately gay. So now might be a good time to take a brief break from the story to discuss the ways we talk about homosexuality when it comes to history, especially history as far back as the 14th century. A lot of preeminent queer theorists and scholars actually disagree as to whether it's useful or helpful to call someone like Edward II gay when that isn't how he would have identified himself or really how anyone at the time would have characterized him. But to me, it also feels like a useless exercise to tie ourselves into knots, as some writers do, trying to paint Edward II and Pierce Gaveston as best bros. The fact of the matter is that textual evidence is that Edward and Gaveston had a relationship that went beyond the normal courtly affection between two men at the time, something that was noted and observed contemporaneously, albeit obliquely. As Peter Ackroyd writes in his book, Queer History, their relationship emphasizes that fine, perhaps non-existent line between camaraderie and same-sex love, as we've come to see in the sort of florid portrayals of courtly love between men in the 14th century and beyond. Edward II and Gaveston would go on to have a formal relationship as wedded brethren, a union that would have been solemnized before an altar in a church. I suppose the apt comparison there is something like them being blood brothers. But again, how disingenuous to pretend that this is a story about two bros who were such close bros that they decided to kneel in a church side by side to show what bros they are. An anonymous writer of a contemporary biography wrote, quote, I do not remember to have heard that one man so loved another. Our king was incapable of moderate favor and on account of Pierce was said to forget himself. And so Pierce was accounted a sorcerer. At the time, sorcerer was coded language for someone who engaged in homosexual acts. An allegation put more explicitly by a Cistercian monk who wrote of Edward II, and please forgive my Latin or lack thereof, Invitio Sodomitico Numium Delectabat, or he wallowed in sodomy. Edward II would go on to father five children, one illegitimate, more than fulfilling his duty with his wife of providing the country with a male heir. But a king doing his duty to provide an heir can sort of be considered an endeavor completely disparate from ideas of love or companionship. So I think we should resist the temptation to, as I saw one less than reputable internet analysis do, celebrate Edward II as the first bisexual king of England. That terminology simply doesn't hold the same meaning it does today when applied to 700 years ago, and so personally I agree with the historians who don't quite see that sort of formal denomination as particularly useful in this case. I do find it helpful just to remember that even though he lived in the 1300s, Edward II was a human being. He was a human being who fell deeply and madly in love with a man. And that relationship would be the central one for almost his entire life. And that love would eventually lead to both of their downfalls. Though the king had restored Gaveston to his son's household, the reunion wouldn't last long. After the campaign in Scotland, the army set up camp for the winter in Lanarcoast, near the English border. That winter, 22 prominent knights, including Gaveston, left camp without permission to sail to France for a series of tournaments. When the men returned, they found that the king had confiscated all of their lands in anger At their disobedience. Eventually, the king calmed down and he realized it was just a youthful indiscretion and all of the knights were forgiven and pardoned. All of the knights except Gaveston. Out of the 22 men, only Gaveston was banished, once again forced to leave the country. The exact reason for Gaveston's uniquely harsh punishment isn't known But it's possible that the king wanted his son to move on from his teenage crush so that he could be ready for his new bride, incoming from France. King Edward I had arranged for his son to marry Isabella, daughter of Philip IV, or Philip the Fair, when she was just two years old. Now that she was 12, it was finally time to make good on that betrothal. In case you were wondering, Edward II was 23. But before the wedding actually took place, Edward I died suddenly. And so the prince ascended to the throne as King Edward II. The first thing Edward did as king was bring back Galveston and grant him the impressive title of Earl of Cornwall. It wasn't unheard of for a king to give a lower-born gentleman such a grand title. But given the nature of the king's relationship with Gaveston, it narrowed some eyes. Especially because before the late king died, he had been planning on giving that earldom to one of his sons by his second wife. The earldom was supposed to go to a prince, and here comes this new king, giving it to an upstart son of a knight. The new king also set Gaveston up with a well-placed wife of his own, Margaret de Clare, sister of the Earl of Gloucester, and Edward's niece. Gaveston was also appointed regent temporarily while Edward went to France to marry his own bride, the 13-year-old Isabella. The wedding in France went right as planned, and so young Isabella accompanied her new husband back to England, where they would have another wedding ceremony and their official coronations as queen and king of England. They arrived back on the shores of Dover on a cold February afternoon. And that very moment would doom their entire marriage. Who was waiting on the shore for the new king and his new bride? Then the real love of the king’s life, Pierce Gaveston. As soon as he set foot to grass, the king ran towards his lover, laughing and crying they embraced for a long time. They kissed. All the while, 13-year-old Isabella of France was just standing there, chilled by the February air and the wind whipping up from the sea, watching her new husband so deeply and so clearly in love with a person that wasn't her. At their coronation, Gaveston took most of the attention. To the shock of nearly everyone there, he arrived wearing purple, a color meant to be worn by only the king. An onlooker noted that he looked more like the god Mars than a mere mortal. At the banquet afterward, the king spent the entire night perched on Gaveston's small couch, gazing up into his eyes, laughing and flirting with him. The king barely so much as acknowledged his new bride. The scene was so outrageous that two of Isabella's uncles left the party in disgust. Life as the new Queen of England was miserable for Isabella. She was young, all alone, and her husband constantly humiliated her with his lack of affection and overt love for Gaveston. She wrote to her father, King Philip the Fair, that she was being treated poorly. The money that was supposed to be given to her by her new husband, seemed to be slow coming while there was never any shortage for whatever extravagance Pierce Gaveston wanted. The jewels that Isabella's father had presented to the king as part of her dowry were being freely shared between the king and Gaveston. Isabella also told her father that the barons of England were getting fed up as well, that they hated Gaveston and the king's outright favoritism that there were rumors that Gaveston had cruel little nicknames for all of them that he used behind their backs. The beloved Earl of Lincoln, Gaveston called Burst Belly, and the Earl of Warwick was, quote, the Black Dog of Arden. King Edward II's untamed affections for this man were making him, and England, vulnerable. In 1308, the great barons of England demanded that the king send peers into exile. Faced directly by the displeasure of his nobles, the king agreed. Exile also meant that he was forced to strip Gaveston's earldom, but the king compensated for it by immediately appointing Gaveston as the king's lieutenant in Ireland. And Edward II was king. He did have some power, and he assumed that the barons would settle down. And so, a year later, when he assumed things would have calmed a bit, he brought Gaveston back to England. He was wrong. Things had not calmed down. By March 1310, the barons were all but threatening civil war if the king refused to sit down with them and negotiate what to do about the Gaveston problem. With his hands tied, Edward II agreed to create an organization called the Lord's Ordainers, a group of 21 earls, barons, and bishops who would agree on the rules when it came to managing the king's household. The ordainers came up with a number of new rules, including, once again, exile for the king's favorite. When faced with a group of angry nobles, some of whom had spent the better part of the past few years assembling private armies, the king found he had very little actual power. He bargained, saying he would agree to all of the rules except the banishment of Gaveston. The nobles refused him. And so, for the third and final time, Gaveston was formally banished from England. It would only be a few months before the king decreed that the ordainers were actually operating illegally, that the proclamations didn't mean anything, so that he could bring Gaveston back. But the nobles would refuse to back down. Which meant that as soon as Gaveston was back in England, he and the king were now on the run from the king's own noblemen. While fleeing the Earl of Lancaster in May of 1312, the king was forced to leave most of his retinue and baggage behind so that he could travel light and avoid capture. So at Newcastle, he abandoned his jewels and plates. He abandoned several valuable war horses and various assorted trappings. And he also abandoned his wife, who was five months pregnant. Edward II's only concern was Gaveston. Gaveston fortified himself at Scarborough Castle, where he was besieged by the Earls of Pembroke and Warwick, it was around this time that Gaveston was also excommunicated by the Archbishop Winchester at St Paul's. The nobles meant war. The siege ended with Gaveston surrendering to the Earl of Pembroke on the condition that they would negotiate with the king for an acceptable course of action and have until August 1st to do it. Pembroke agreed. And he took Galveston into his custody to Deddington in Banbury, where he'd be kept until they finalized their deal with the king. Pembroke guaranteed his safety, and word was sent down to the king, who, of course, immediately began riding north. But then Pembroke spent a weekend away with a cousin. And whether it was purposeful or just an unfortunate coincidence, Galveston was left unguarded. When the Earl of Warwick heard that the hated Gaveston was so close, he sprung into action and captured him himself. He brought the king's favorite back to Warwick in chains, parading him through the streets like a common thief, while the crowd jeered at him and made obscene gestures. Before the king could even finish his travels, the earls completed a quick sham trial And brought Piers Gaveston to Blacklow Hill, where two Welsh executioners were ready to kill him by running him through first with a sword and then by cutting off his head. His body was left to rot on the hill. Gaveston being excommunicated at the time meant that he couldn't have a proper Christian burial although the king did immediately begin fighting to recover the body and give his love the resting place he thought he deserved. Gaveston's body was eventually rescued and embalmed and buried in the Dominican friary at King's Langley in Hertfordshire, but it wouldn't be until 1823 that a local squire would erect a monument for Piers Gaveston, which would read under his name, quote, The Minion of a Hateful King, beheaded by barons, as lawless as himself. According to that squire, there were no heroes in this story. The king mourned deeply, and though during the following period he would sire heirs with his wife, his heart never recovered from the loss of his greatest love, the man he had spent 13 years with. He would eventually, nearly a decade later, find a new favorite, a man named Hugh Dispenser the Younger, Unlike Pierce Gaveston, who had been relatively moderate in his spending and not too keen on making enemies, what good it did him, Hugh Spencer was shameless. He spent wildly, and it wasn't long before the nobles were calling him another Gaveston. The Queen, for her part, despised Dispenser. Here was another young upstart, not only taking her husband's attention again, but flaunting it. It goes without saying that the king's treatment of his wife hadn't improved since the first time they set foot on English soil together. Once, her household had been fleeing a Scottish army, and her husband had so dawdled on sending support that it led to her just barely escaping with her life. Queen Isabella eventually persuaded her husband to let her go to France to negotiate with her brother, who was by then the king. It was while she was at French court that she met a man named Roger Mortimer, a formerly powerful English lord who had been forced to flee the country after a failed rebellion against Edward II. The friendship between the queen and Mortimer deepened when it was revealed that they had a common goal, removing Edward from the throne. The two became lovers, and eventually Mortimer led an expedition that would see the pair of them successfully seize control of the English throne. Hugh Spencer was captured and found guilty on more charges than he could answer for. He knew that execution was coming to him, and that that execution would be grim. And so before his verdict, he had been trying to starve himself to death. But it didn't work and he was right about the execution being grim. So if you're a little squeamish about gore, you might want to fast forward uh, about 30 seconds. The king's new favorite was dragged through the streets, naked and publicly humiliated, with men writing Bible verses on his skin, Bible verses about the many sins of which he had been formally accused. Dispenser was to be hanged as a commoner, But the noose was released before he was fully asphyxiated, and so, still breathing but only barely, dispenser was tied to a ladder, and a red-hot blade was used to slice off his genitals. From there, he was beheaded and drawn and quartered. His head was mounted on the gates of London. King Edward II was captured soon afterward and forced to abdicate in favor of his young son, Edward III, who would be king in name only as Queen Isabella and Roger Mortimer ruled as regents in his stead. While captured and imprisoned, Edward died, either of a mysterious illness or, more likely, at the behest of the new regime. The rumor, with not much factual evidence behind it, but a rumor that's plenty colorful— is that he was killed by guards in a way that wouldn't show much damage to the outside of his body. Another warning here, I'm going to say this as delicately as I can, uh, by shoving a flaming hot poker up his rear end. But that detail, lurid as it is, may be an example of historical embellishment meant to emphasize the gossip around the king's relationships and sexual proclivities. But that rumor in itself is evidence that the king's relationships were explicitly sexual. No one ever shoves a red-hot poker up someone's butt because they're upset that he's such close platonic bros with another man. That's the tragic story of Pierce Gaveston and King Edward II, but stick around after a brief sponsor break, to hear more about what happened with Queen Isabella. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found quince, now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and honestly my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365 day returns Quince.com slash noble
0: what kind of fun is waiting for you at king's island the holy cow we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun the make a splash all summer kind of fun I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find, for the fun of it, kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends.
1: Edward III eventually came of age and overthrew the regency of Roger Mortimer and Queen Isabella. Roger Mortimer was killed... But graciously, Edward III spared the life of his mother. The queen was briefly imprisoned, but then allowed to live in a palace just away from court. Edward III did one more thing to honor the memory of his father, the man whom he could scarcely remember, but who had been so deeply betrayed by his wife and fellow countrymen. When Queen Isabella died, her son Edward III had something wrapped in linen and buried alongside her. It was King Edward II's embalmed heart, the thing that had caused so much trouble and strife and pain. At last, for the first time, and only in death, would Queen Isabella finally have it. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz and produced by Aaron Mankey, Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales, and you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.